This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good evening. My name is Chris Coughlin, and along with Tracy Regis, my co-chair, and the rest of the organizing committee, I'd like to welcome you to the 2013 Big Bang Business Plan Competition Awards and Finals. Tonight's event is the culmination of a year-long forum in which UC Davis students, alumni, faculty, and staff have collaborated to develop, test, and refine their business visions and plans. This competition provides a network of resources for entrepreneurial mentorship, education, networking, and financing for the UC Davis community and the entrepreneurs you'll be hearing from tonight. Our competition season started months ago with 26 eager teams and through multiple rounds of business writing and pitches, our panel of judges has picked the five best to present to you tonight. I promise you won't be disappointed. So I was sitting at home last night trying to come up with a way to open tonight's program, but I wasn't having any luck. I was flipping through my bookshelf, determined to find some inspiration when I came across Andy Harganon's book. You'll be hearing from him later tonight. It's all about breakthroughs and innovation. It's what tonight is supposed to be all about. That'd help me, right, you'd think. Well, I sifted through a couple of pages. It wasn't really any good. I started to get bored. As I closed the book, caught a glimpse of the front cover. Inspiration hit. Or should I say the light bulb came on. So some questions for the crowd. How many economists does it, change, does it take to change a light bulb? They're projecting three for next year, but that's a conservative estimate. How many software engineers does it take to change a light bulb? None. It's a hardware problem. How many PhD candidates does it take to change a light bulb? Only one, but it could take upwards of five years for him or her to get it done. <laughs> or it all depends on the size of the grant. Or two, and a professor to take all the credit. <laughs> Finally, how many entrepreneurs does it take to change a light bulb? Come on, they're too busy looking for investors for their patented kinetic glowing ceiling. Or They've outsourced home improvements to India and have arranged to do it while vacationing in Tahoe. Or they're developing an app for that. We probably will have light bulbs for a little while yet, but emerging entrepreneurs shouldn't just be thinking about changing for change's sake. Instead, they should be learning the business case for making our world a better place in terms of both the, pro the planet and individual customers. In today's social and connected world, great products that have an impact will spread once they're out there. That's the beauty of the networks we're all a part of. Great ideas are just a mouse click or a Facebook post or a tweet away. The entrepreneurs you're going to hear from tonight are working to make our world a better place. They're developing innovative ways to recycle, enhancing nonprofit fundraising, connecting special needs families, destroying barriers in the organ and tissue transplant field, and creating eco-friendly alternatives to producing chemicals. Perhaps then, the question, how many entrepreneurs does it take to change a light bulb, is the wrong question. Maybe a better question for our current generation of entrepreneurs might not be about changing light bulbs at all, but instead about how we can change light together. To kick off our program tonight, 
I'd like to introduce Will Agatstein, the Executive Director for the Child Family Institute for Innovation and Entrepreneurship. Will. Thank you. It's one of my favorite pictures uh, where I led a group of students to Czech Republic and Hungary. And, uh, you know, that's a great picture. Let's go. Uh, so first of all, I want to just clear some, something up. Uh, so I'm the executive director for the Child Family Institute for Innovation and Entrepreneurship. Uh, we're not a daycare. Uh, it's the thing we get most of the time. Uh, through the generous gift of Mike and Renee Child and their family, uh, the Institute for Innovation and Entrepreneurship uh, has this great opportunity. So really, on behalf of all the faculty and the staff and the students of the Child Family Institute, Innovation and Entrepreneurship, and the Graduate School of Management, and Dean Corral, who uh, can't be here tonight because he's sick, actually, We'd like to thank you for uh, joining us for the Big Bang uh, Finals. It's really an exciting part of the academic year. Uh, this program has gone on all year, as Chris had talked about, and it really starts with ideas in the very beginning, or maybe teams that don't have ideas. Builds teams, build ideas, and uh, runs them through a great process to build that. You know, the Child Family Institute's mission uh, is to connect and to educate and to move ideas forward. And that's what we're here for, and this is a great opportunity to do that. Uh, Big Bang is important in many aspects. Uh, first of all, obviously, it's important in bringing ideas forward. It's also very important for building and creating teams. As the year goes along, we see a number of individuals who didn't know each other, they form teams, uh, and sometimes they win business plan competitions. And as the community, I'm sure, is interested in, it's important for building new businesses. There are actual businesses that have come out of the competition that didn't exist before the competition began, or people who were thinking of their five-year PhD program uh, who uh, will shorten it to move their idea forward or make plans to bring it to reality once it's done. I think something which is very important to articulate is even though it's called a business plan competition, Big Bang is all about building skills and building connections, not really about weeding out teams. Obviously, at the end, there's a first place and a second place in a people's choice. But in reality, everybody who was involved is a success because they've moved forward more than they had in the past. Uh, and even when the competition is done, some of the teams will move their ideas forward, and some will use it as a learning exercise. But again, the mission, connect and educate, is what this whole competition, what we're all about. Clearly, as you'll see uh, later this afternoon, there's some fantastic teams. And as will be explained to you later, you have the opportunity to select the people's choice. Now, there are a lot of options uh, where teams can go once they've completed. And there's a lot of support from the community, both Davis and Sacramento and elsewhere, uh, to help these teams uh, get started. So first of all, um, I would like to thank the Big Bang team. And so if you're all here, many of you are, uh, they have worked tirelessly, and I mean tirelessly, including pouring through Andy's book last night, I guess. Uh, I've skimmed through that book, too. Uh, and uh, to move the idea forward. So if you wouldn't mind standing up, Chris, you're right there. Tracy, Jane, Julia, Jake, and Stefan, I think if you all are here. I want to I, thank you. I want to thank all of them. Uh, I can tell you, 
uh, from working on this for like six years. Uh, they've done a lot of work, and without them, it would never be a success. Um, I would also like to thank uh, the members of my team, some of who are, whom are here, some are not, uh, but Nicole, Nikki, Edward, Marion, and Mara, uh, also without whom this would not be a success. I think a few of you are here. Stand on up. Excellent. Um, and I also want to thank those for getting involved. There's a lot of people who aren't recognized uh, who are critical to make this a success. Uh, there are a number of seminars. There are a variety of people who are speakers to help lead the students forward. Uh, there were a lot of mentors, a lot of people helping move the teams forward, many of you whom are you in the audience. Uh, the judges, there was a variety of judging sessions. I have to admit, I sat through most of them. Uh, and uh, I think I could probably give a few of these presentations, uh, <laughs> as I think the judges can too. Uh, one thing I will tell you is the thoughts, the ideas, the presentations, and the business plans have improved greatly. A lot of that is due to the team. A lot of that's due to the mentors uh, and the judges. I also want to uh, thank the community uh, who helped move these ideas forward and the community that will benefit from the results. Uh, now, like all university things, uh, we cannot be successful without support of our sponsors. Uh, and you can see up here uh, our sponsors, DLA Piper, Bhutan Jones, Kenwood Investments, Lamplighter Financial, SMUD, Acres Capital, the Central Valley Fund, Moss Adams, Pipra, and Waypoint Ventures. So let's give them all a round of applause. And this year, we get to give, actually, a special recognition. Uh, and uh, Andrew Barkett, Andy, um, uh, who's back there somewhere? Andy, would you mind standing up? Everybody, a round of applause. Um, so the, the competition uh, has received, uh, I think, three things. Uh, one of them is a $50,000 gift um, from Andy, who's an MBA of 2009, by the way. Uh, and he's been long involved in entrepreneurship in building businesses uh, and the Graduate School of Management. And he's passionate about innovation and entrepreneurship. And so his generous donation uh, uh, in technical speak is both an endowment and current use, which means we get to do stuff now, we get to do things in the future to help build the capacity uh, of the competition, and that's fantastic. So that's the first thing. The second thing is his uh, intense enthusiasm, which if you talk to him, I'm sure uh, you will recognize. Uh, his enthusiasm to help make the competition better this year, which I think you'll see uh, in future years. And the third thing is his network. Uh, Andy has a broad network and is going to bring some of that to bear uh, to help make this better. So um, let's give Andy another round of applause. Um, just for those of you who don't know, um, here, obviously, we have Big Bang Business Plan Competition. Uh, but we have a variety of other programs we love for you as students, or you as faculty, you as community, you as the network to get involved. Uh, Big Bang, of course. Uh, we have the UC Entrepreneurship Academy in September that will help uh, UC Davis and other science and engineering students, MBA students, move their ideas forward. Uh, we have a brand new sustainable ag tech innovation center and an academy uh, through a million dollar grant to help really move uh, innovative, uh, sustainable agricultural ideas forward. Um, we have a business development fellows program, of which you'll see a few of them tonight. Also this year, we've reached out uh, not into just uh, graduate, but also undergraduate. There's an e-fund program that's just for undergraduates. Now it's in its fourth quarter. 
Uh, we have a new Think Global, Act Local speaker series, which uh, many of you actually have been speakers in, been a huge success. We have an inaugural uh, undergrad uh, innovation workshop that's ended this month. First time we're bringing the whole concept of a three-day entrepreneurship academy, our year-long business plan program, uh, down into like three hours. And there's a number, it's gonna be like, hold on to your seats. Uh, and there's a number of entrepreneurship clubs, a lot of them run by the MBA students and some with undergrads. So tonight you're gonna see some great presentations and you get an opportunity to see the winners and you get the opportunity to pick some as well. But like always, we always look forward to next year. Uh, this academic year is rapidly coming to a close, but next academic year will be starting up uh, before you know it. Uh, so we invite all of you to participate in a variety of programs as a member of a Big Bang team, as a member of the network, uh, and, as a, and as a sponsor. So again, we're all excited to be here. We we'll hope you're excited. Um, we look forward to seeing the teams. Thank you. Okay. Thanks, Will. Um, I wanted to really quickly draw your attention. There's a ballot on each of your seats in the packet um, that was, was out there when you got there. Um, that's a People's Choice Award, which is a award you're going to have the opportunity to vote on here at the end of the night. Um, those, uh, the teams, and there's a little blurb about which, what they do is on there. Um, at the end of the night, we'll uh, let you know when we're going to collect those, and we'll give a $2,000 prize to the team that has the most votes from the crowd. So, our first team, let's see if I can get, our first team makes plastic recycling profitable and sustainable by utilizing synthetic biology to engineer custom-tailored organisms that degrade PET plastic into high-value commodity chemicals. Ladies and gentlemen, this is AmberCycle. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. So my name's Jerry Dion, and actually, I think this, that's good. My name's Jerry Dion, and I'm with AmberCycle Industries, and we have a novel approach to recycling plastic that solves the principal problem in recycling today, and that's the quality of the recycled product. And if we're going to talk about plastic, got to get this thing to work, there we go. We need to talk about which type of plastic. We're talking about uh, polyethylene terephthalate, the number one plastic recycling, if you look on the bottom of your bottle. And this type of plastic is our bottles, it's our food containers, it's our polyester clothing, it's also our carpet that we're st sitting on. And we also, the, the real problem in recycling today is that the quality of the plastic product that is recycled is lower than new plastic. It's not as good. In some ways, it's like recycled newspaper, right? It just feels different, it feels weaker, it doesn't feel as good, and it has lots of impurities in it. And the value of recycled PET, that's the plastic we're talking about, is about 75% less than new plastic. And this contributes to the mountains of containers and fabric that's littering and filling up our world. So the recycling industry today is really robust. It's been around for quite a while, including um, there's lots of policy and infrastructure that keeps uh, recycling bottles, lots of deposit systems that we keep producing as lower grade plastic. But really, the most pressing current problem is carpet. In fact, hundreds of thousands of pounds every single day are, t are tossed away. About 7% of this is recycled, 4% of it is burned, and about 89% of it is put into landfills. And that means 2.7 million tons are disposed a year, 
and 4.7 million tons are landfilled. In response, California passed AB 2398, California Carpet Stewardship Legislation, and set a due target of 16% and really connected carpet producers and sellers to disposal of carpet. So plastic is a polymer. It's a polymer of two chemicals, terephthalic acid and ethylene glycol. Ethylene glycol is antifreeze. And it's just large chains of this, of, of this, this molecule over and over. What we're able to do is take that plastic and not remelt it, which is what currently happens, but actually break it back down into the two chemicals that it's made of, and then it could be made back into plastic again. I didn't say we're going to make it back into plastic, right? That's a very robust industry. What we're going to do is we're going to sell this one chemical as a commodity. We wouldn't add no value to making new plastic. That's not what our innovation's about. It's about selling terephthalic acid, and that is uh, the, bulk, the, the main aspect of our revenue model. It's a worldwide commodity. It has a spot price, a daily spot price, and a contract delivery price. We'll take both of those in different combinations. It's a, they make 50 million tons of this chemical every year. That's a $50 billion industry every year. And in our best case, in year five, we could make 40,000 tons. And just as a matter of scale, that would make us 0.08% of the world market. We are not affecting this world market. It's not our goal to affect the terephthalic acid world market. Our goal is to recycle plastic. So we're going to be focused on recycling carpet. And there's some very important value chain partnerships that you have to understand because we're going to be wedged very tightly in between the people that produce this plastic and also the people who have the scrap plastic. And you could think this could be a big problem, but really we think of this as only opportunity because these are our partners. In fact, these might be future funders. These might be the people that we're having uh, specific arrangements or agreements with and potentially long-term contracts. So here's another part of the great story is Akshay Sethi, who's, who's on the team, is an undergrad and helped lead an iGEM uh, business competition. It was actually a synthetic biology competition. And I think we're going to find sooner or later as this story unfolds, this is going to be a story of undergraduates basically changing an entire industry with their vision on how to possibly recycle plastic. Uh, myself is also on the team dealing with management and finance. I'm in the Graduate School of Management. And Matt Remick is dealing with funding and sales, is an economy major, economics major, I should say. And we are missing a chemical engineer. We know this is a hole in our, prop, in our team, and we're really looking for one. In fact, if anybody knows a good chemical engineer, please send them our way. We really desperately need one. We've done some interviews. We haven't found the right person. We've had two great advisors who've been incredibly helpful. Uh, Micromidas founder John Bissell, who's here today, and thank you, John. And Mark Facciati, PhD on the faculty here at UC Davis, has also been highly, uh, very helpful. So Mark's focus is synthetic biology. And that's a good part of what the, our technology is about. Our technology is about breaking this plastic down, and we're going to use enzymatic reactions that are derived from microbes. And that's where we get to the synthetic biology component. It's a relatively new discipline, so we're on the ground floor. Synthetic biology is concerned with engineering these microbes for functions, for specific purposes, and then continuing to evolve them 
And in 2012, the White House issued a report on this very topic, and it noted that there's medical applications, agricultural and industrial applications. And there's another great aspect of using synthetic biology for our approach, is that for medical applications, you have five, 10 years worth of FDA approval time before you can really see benefit. Agriculture ap applications, you have to convince millions of farmers to change their, pro their practices. For us, we can start making this, we can make this now, and we can just continue to improve it over and over and over. And so our return is immediate when we begin using these processes. So the technology, very quickly, we have, we'll have a tank, we'll put the plastic in, we'll put the enzymes in, we'll recover the PTA, we'll then also use that ethylene glycol, this is a good trick, we're gonna use that ethylene glycol to feed our microbes, to actually provide the feedstock for the microbes. Then we'll purify the terephthalic acid for, for sale. And what's this gonna look like? Well, it's gonna look like a brewery. It's gonna be relatively low tech, low temperature, or room temperature, standard pressure. This is not a large industrial process. This is a biological process. So funding and milestones, we have a very standard approach. We have basically some more R&D we need to do, demo plant, pilot plant, production plant, relatively traditional, if you will, ladder of funding from angels, grant, federal grants, VC funds, late stage VC, and then we begin uh, really approaching uh, sale or continuing a different uh, production process with more plants, et cetera, or deeper partnerships. Now this would be a really great idea, but if the numbers don't add up, right, it's sort of great idea, bad, you know, good technology, bad idea. And they definitely do. In five years, we should be able to be essentially clearing $8 million if this was to roll out as we would hope. Now, regardless of exactly how it rolls out, the important things is we understand the key drivers, which is selling tons of PTA, number of employees, and the capital investment are the keys to how to make this business sort of sail along. So I want to end. I'd love to keep talking about it because I'm pretty excited. However, um, just want to say thank you to everybody that's been involved and just say that we have a very exciting business that is taking essentially a waste product and making a valuable, com a valuable commodity at the same time having a very profitable business. Thank you. Thanks, Jerry. Our next company is a specialty software and services company that improves the experience for all stakeholders across the system of care for children with autism. Ladies and gentlemen, here is Navigate Autism. Can you see me? <laughs> um, thank you very much. It's quite an honor to be here. Um, Autism is the fastest growing developmental disability. Uh, there is no medical detection, no cure, and no clear path for treatment and education. This causes great stress for the stakeholders who try to help people who have autism, um, particularly the parents of these children who have autism. When we first started this project, we were really focusing on the educational needs of children. We're from the School of Education, and we're all about learners and lifelong learners. But what we found very quickly is that it's actually the parents who need the education first and the help to enable them to make better decisions on behalf of their children. So 
we went about interviewing about 150 different parents and stakeholders to find out what it is that they need to help them um, make uh, better informed decisions, and thus Navigate Autism was born. Our mission, specifically, is to simplify how people navigate the autism system of care by providing a website that customizes content for users and allows stakeholders to collaborate. Um, which increases efficiency, reduces stress, and enables better decision-making, ultimately containing the chaos, or taming it, the chaos within the system of care. And it's pretty chaotic. You interested in how chaotic it is? Extremely chaotic, as you can see right there. This, on purpose, is very messy, but it's really actually quite messy out there. First and foremost, autism is extremely expensive to treat. Could be up to $85,000 a year to treat a child with treat an educated child with autism. It's a very complex system of care. There are 6 to 8 different service providers that help these children including speech therapists, physical therapists, educators, occupational therapists, etc. Layered on top of that is the payer group who um, funds the services. So this payer group, are you ready for this, includes no fewer than 4 state agencies, parents, and most recently um, ins health insurance companies. Legislation was just passed last, uh, well, went into effect last summer that mandates that health insurance companies participate in this. The system is in flux. There's an increased flow of cases. This new legislation has created quite a contentious atmosphere out there. And the state is obviously in a financial crisis. Parents, incidentally, are at the center of making these decisions, and they are often driven by fear and confusion. Undoubtedly, the problem is pretty significant. So we've created a solution, and my next venture will be to how to use a clicker for the dummies. Um, our web-based solution is rooted in enabling interconnectivity among the stakeholders, providing the right resources at the right time. For families, they connect to gain knowledge and to reduce stress. For the service providers, they connect to facilitate their collaboration among multiple payers and parents. And the payers connect to reduce administrative cost and actually to expand their caseworker expertise. This is a really high-touch disability, and everybody's confused. Our system is going to bring everybody together. Our prototype focuses specifically on helping parents. Um, our features focus on organization, education, communication, and support, um, all personalized to a family's specific needs. Each child has a very specific requirement that's different from every other child, so we need to personalize solutions for families. Um, we've received extremely positive feedback from all the parents that we've talked to, um, the provider groups and the payers, and we're in early discussions to potentially have a pilot with Cigna Healthcare and also talking with uh, Kaiser in California. Our initial target market is actually the newly diagnosed families. This is a pretty significant group of people that are coming into the system. In fact, we spoke with um, another parent at some testing that we did last night. These people are 
vulnerable and confused and really need the help. And it's our intent to work with these newly diagnosed people, build our user base, and be with families as they grow and they grow with our system. So while we're focusing initially on newly diagnosed, there's lots and lots of opportunity to also expand into other transitional ages. And this is just in California. Once we expand beyond California, the opportunity is exponential. But we do have a little bit of a complicated user base and growth strategy and revenue streams. But because this market is so interconnected, we really believe the opportunity actually, um, the users are going to connect themselves to one another. So we're going after families first. They're going to invite their service providers and their payers to participate. And for the consumer version, which is the parent version, we anticipate that it's going to be a freemium-based subscription model. Now, some of these folks will convert to paying users. We don't expect a lot of paying consumers. We actually think that the provider group will be, because they have so many multiple clients, they're the ones that are really going to find a lot of benefit in trying to manage their, um, their systems that are very difficult to manage right now. Um, then the payer group, we really are going after the payer group, particularly the health insurance companies because they have deep pockets. But we also think there's an opportunity for e-commerce through training, special products, um, and special events, even for caseworkers. Perhaps we'll build a network for caseworkers specifically themselves. And then because we're customizing content, there's incredible opportunity to customize and personalize advertising going forward. Well, uh, because of the, the many different groups, though, our marketing approach will be partly traditional, but we'll also use heavy social media and event marketing to the parents specifically. Uh, Navigate Autism is very, very unique. We are working within the School of Education, but the UC Davis Mayan Institute, which is a world-renowned research institute out of uh, Sacramento, is our partner as well. And we really believe our branding will bring a lot of credibility that doesn't currently exist in the marketplace. Um, we have a proprietary customizing algorithm that will ultimately build an expert system to continuously add value to our users. Um, and we're first mover advantage um, looking at this from a system approach and bringing all the stakeholders together. We also think that we can be profitable doing this. We really believe that we need the flexibility through a for-profit business model. And our plan is to start slowly in the next year, but ramping all the way up from about uh, 4,500 paying users to about 36,000 paying users. And that actually represents about 10% uh, of the uh, youth market in California, but only 2% of the total user market in California. We're going to need about a million and a half dollars to finish up and scale our prototype um, and to fund our cumulative negative cash flow, um, as well as six months' worth of expenses that we'll have, not to mention the therapy that all of the startup people will need from... Anyway. Um, we also are going to need an infusion of cash at the end of 2016 because we're really going to be expanding our business and going beyond California. We have a great team. Um, right now, we have a lot of internal resources, um, including uh, Cynthia Summer and Simon Dvorak, who's our programmer. We have great clinical support at the Mayan Institute. We have a super group of advisors, including one of the founders of the Mayan Institute, um, the dean at the School of Education, and Larry Polly, who is a Sacramento angel who has been our mentor and been really super helpful to all of us. But we also have some informal advisors who work um, with us uh, 
um, in the technology world, and specifically we have about three or four entrepreneurs that focus in autism services. We're currently supported through the UC Davis Mine Institute and the School of Education. And I just want to leave you with this. Navigate Autism solves a significant and growing problem in the autism system of care. Um, we currently are seeking $1.5 million to get this really important solution to parents and other stakeholders. They want our solution, but more importantly, they desperately need it. Thank you. All right. Great job, Tracy. Our third presentation is from a team taking a novel approach to producing chemicals by reducing the reliance on finite fossil fuels, using renewable alternatives, and delivering a sustainable future. Please welcome Davis Kem. All right, thank you, Chris. So we're Davis Chem, and uh, you know, honestly, we're a green chemical company creating solutions to today's problems, not only competitively, but eco-friendly. Um, we feel confident that we will be, as you see under our logo, powering your sustainable future. Um, a little bit more confidently than I got the uh, shirt color memo today. I think today was a green day. Unfortunately, I went blue. At least they're Davis colors. But So let's jump into the meat and potatoes here. What the heck do we do? Well, our initial product is the production of isobutyraldehyde, which for your benefit, I'll refer to as IBA, as it's a little bit more digestible that way. And that's like the base chemical that creates the avenues to a lot of the solutions we have. Um, whether you knew it or you didn't know it, you've interacted with isobutyraldehyde by the time you've sat down today. It's in the paints and the walls that surround us. It's in the fragrances you chose to wear before you came here. It's in the rubbers you used for the car that brought you here, or wait, this is Davis, and the tires that brought you on your bike. So as you see, it kind of interacts with just about every component of your day-to-day -day life. So what the heck is the problem, and what really are we doing here? Well, the problem is everything as far as IBA for the chemical industry is produced from petroleum. And as we know, that's a finite fossil fuel. And our solution is a novel green approach where we're using glucose, water, and air, which seems extremely simple. But going back to the problem, keep in mind that the petroleum IBA production that happens currently also emits greenhouse gases. Our solution, which is the eco-friendly alternative that uses this minimal processing, also is carbon neutral. So take for a minute something that's finite and recognize something that could be sustainably produced for many more generations to come. The important thing to grab here is really the quote you see there. There's a lot of big names, you know, the DuPonts of the world, uh, Pershrops. You're seeing a lot of companies there that are real big players in the chemical industry. Um, the current market domestically is just under a billion. Internationally, it's three billion in total. It's a growing market. Um, yeah, three percent doesn't seem like a gigantic leap, uh, but again, when you look at those raw numbers, it's rather substantial. Now, the quote we're looking there is from a potential partner that would be looking at tens of millions of pounds of isobutyraldehyde if we were able to produce, again, this IBA in an eco-friendly format. So we know if we can deliver the goods, there is a customer to be had. Um, so our business strategy, for the most part, revolves around a couple key steps. Strategic partners within the chemical industry, uh, possible offshoots licensing our technology, or entering into kind of offshoots of isobutyraldehyde, stuff you might be more familiar with, like isobutanol, which makes its way into fuels. 
Why is that important? Um, we're seeing a lot of federal mandates that are growing. As you see some of these numbers here, in 2008, they put 9 billion gallons of isobutanol needed to be produced in an eco-friendly renewable format. That's ballooning to 36 billion by 2022. So one of the offshoots gives us the opportunity to recognize you know, further values down the line if we're able to produce IPA in an eco-friendly format and also let us know there's a greater potential than what you're going to see on some of our financial figures that'll really just revolve around this IBA. So what is our technology and how did we come to this? Well, as we talk about the simplicity of it, this may not look super simple, but take the left-hand side and think of it as sugar. And take this sugar and then you're going to process it through this patent patented technology, and you're going to produce this wonderful and very, very valuable chemical uh, catalyst, IBA. And then farther down here, it goes back to the original comment of the things that you interact with on a daily basis. So you see where it goes, and you see that it comes from sugar and can be processed to produce it. That seems a lot more green and a lot more future um, than something that's coming from a fossil fuel like petroleum. Now, the actual patent is something that we have through Professor Atsumi from UC Davis. So what really brought this to fruition for us, it wasn't our own idea. I'd love to say we sat around and we thought, well, you know, let's find a eco-friendly way of producing IBA. To be honest with you, about a year ago, none of my teammates outside of Renee, our uh, postdoc chemical genius, knew what IBA was. So we took this business development clinic with Professor Augustine, and uh, we were given a litany of UC Davis patents to look at along with our own wonderful ideas, which we thought were much more valuable. <laughs> Eventually, we stumbled on this one, and we realized, well, Professor Augustine actually has a plan. He's not forcing us to look at these things because he has to do it. These are way more valuable than some of the own ideas that we, the genius MBAs, thought we had. And to be honest with you, it takes a lot for an MBA to listen to somebody. And uh, we listened to Will, and we took his idea, and we tried to champion the cause. We hope we're successful, uh, but let's jump to what our competitive position is. Here you see some of the biggest players in the game. Dow, which there is a rumor there's a Dow person here. If you are a fantastic company. But we have Eastman, BASF, you know, kind of the same mantra as BASF when they talk about they don't make the things that you actually interact with, they make them better. Our hope is to make them more eco-friendly and at the same or lower cost point. It's a little bit aggressive, it's a little bit hopeful, but we think we're very, very close to that. And as you see, naturally, we checked all the marks for ourselves. So the important thing is that we can produce the same quality, the same percentage of quality of IBA, keep it at the same price, and be able to do it in an eco-friendly, long-term solution. So again, you see another quote where you know, we're getting a lot of sort of feedback from a couple slides ago you saw a million different icons of big companies. We reached out to all of them, and slowly but surely, we're beginning to get more and more feedback that we're interested in what you have to say. If you can produce this, if you can scale this up, if you can actually deliver it, uh, you could have a first mover's advantage. So let's go look at the timeline. How fast could we produce this? Now, the timeline's a little bit drawn out, but as I flip through the little icons that'll pop up, I'll talk you through what you should be looking at. From 2014, when we break out our pilot plant, which we are definitely planning on using some funds from the Big Bang and doing, um, we basically get to the point of having our first paid customer buy 2016. At that point, what puts us about a year away from our first volume customer, which gets us to our goal of 2019. Not too far out there. Remember, 2022, we're looking at 36 billion uh, tons of isobutanol need to be used for fuel. So by 2019, we're at our maximum capacity. We're ready for even more regulations and even more opportunity. So as we jump to our income statement and showing some financials here, 
my much smarter MBA CFO, Zyda, over there, made this as easy for me to point out as possible. By 2019, when we're at full capacity, we're walking a 33% gross margin. And that's awesome, especially for the chemical industry when you're looking at changing the landscape. It's expensive, it's hard to do, but knowing that there's profit to be had helps people want to work with us. So who are the geniuses that brought this to life that are much smarter than me? My teammates. So we have Zyda, the CFO, who works the numbers magic. We have Sandeep, who's our brain trust over there, as well as Renee, who's our postdoc chemical researcher. She's the one that helped digest IBA, let us understand what isobutyraldehyde was, let us feel confident in even saying it and discovering it and to solving the problem at hand. Now, at our advisory board, obviously Professor Atsumi, we have Molly Schmidt, who has biotech startup experience, and Professor Mark Lowe, also from UC Davis, has tremendous uh, startup experience and a fantastic professor at that. So as I take you to our last slide, just to bring you back, again, our technology is renewable, it's carbon neutral, and it's a unique opportunity. And you know, going back to Professor Augustine's class, I'll leave you with this. We didn't want the sexiest solution, we didn't want the simplest solution. Um, no pun intended, we wanted to make a big bang. So we went for the maximum impact. And in doing so, we wanted to look at something that 10 years down the line, if we got asked to come back and speak on our success, it's impacting your day-to-day -day lives. So thank you, and uh, I'll pass it on to the next person. So our teams thought they were getting a break by not having any judges for the first time this competition, so we decided to throw in some technology issues for them, just to keep them on their toes. So we are going to go to our fourth company. So our next company is on a mission to eliminate the shortage of general organs by generating patent-compatible tissue and organ replacements from animal sources. Their novel patent-pending platform technology removes immunological barriers from animal-derived tissues and organs, resulting in replacements that no longer require patients to take lifelong medication or undergo additional surgeries. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Vivida Technologies. Good evening. Thank you for the opportunity to be here with you today. My name is Maylene Wong, and I'm the CEO of Vivita Technologies. Our mission at Vivita is to eliminate the shortage of donor organs using patient-compatible organs and tissues from animal sources through the use of our patent-pending platform technology. Therefore, our intention is to dominate the emerging tissue engineering space and revolutionize regenerative medicine. Today, I'll be talking with you about our first product, heart valve replacement. In the United States, 4 million people per year are diagnosed with heart valve disorder, with 100,000 patients undergoing total valve replacement. With the aging American population and increasing trends in obesity, the demand for heart valve replacements is on the rise. So if you were to need a heart valve replacement today, your current best option is the biological heart valve because it functions most like your normal healthy valve. However, at best, this valve is only going to last you 10 years and is unable to grow with you. Therefore, if you're expected to live for any more than 10 years, you won't be given the biological heart valve. You'll be given the salvage option, a mechanical heart valve, which will keep you alive, 
but will require that you're on blood thinners for the rest of your life, as well as being unable to mimic your original valve. But worse still, if your child were to need a heart valve replacement, it wouldn't matter which of these two options they received, because in only two to three years, they would need to undergo an additional heart valve replacement, because neither of these options is able to grow as your child grows. Our product, ValveGen, is able to resolve all of the limitations of current solutions because it is a living valve replacement. By being a living replacement, ValveGen has an unlimited lifespan, meaning age is no longer a determinant in whether or not you can receive the best heart valve. It's also able to grow with you, which means children with heart valve disorders no longer face a childhood full of open heart procedures. Furthermore, it's able to avoid the need for anticoagulant therapy associated with heart valves that are mechanically based, and therefore is a functionally ideal solution because it behaves most like your original healthy valve. Further, ValveJet benefits all major stakeholders. For the surgeon, because there's no learning curve associated with implantation of our product, established surgical techniques can be used, resulting in an improved patient outcome. For the provider, costs associated with repeat procedures, long-term follow-up care, as well as lifelong medications are eliminated. And for the patient, they truly can receive a lifelong cure without the need to worry about the risks and costs associated with these repeat procedures, follow-up care, and long-term medications. So now that you've heard about some of the benefits of ValveGen, let me tell you how we make it using the Vivita process. Our process begins with animal-derived tissue, just like our competitors, as it is readily available. All tissue is made up of cells on the surrounding supporting scaffold. And left untreated, triggers of immune rejection within this material result in rapid destruction of the implant. And so as an attempt to address this, our competitors will burst open the cell, but they fail to remove these triggers of immune rejection. So our process goes further, and in a stepwise fashion, is able to target the removal of these immune triggers, resulting in a material which is compatible with your body immediately upon implantation. In summary, our robust and scalable chemical process is able to facilitate direct removal of these immune targets, is robust and scalable, and has already been tested in small animals. Further, it's protected by two patents pending made up of 182 claims, which forms the basis with which we'll generate our heart valve replacement. Now, excitingly, this exact same process can be used to generate a whole host of acellular scaffold patches, for which solutions do exist and are used clinically, but are limited by significant um, drawbacks, which our process resolves. Further, as we continue to develop additional IP at Vivita to add patient cells back into this scaffold, we'll be able to develop tissues of increasing complexity and eventually whole organs, which we'll pursue either in-house or through licensing with partners. So I didn't get to spend very much time on this, but I hope you can appreciate the enormous potential of the Vivita process and the resultant product pipeline. So on that note of enormous potential, I'd like to draw your attention back to heart valve replacements, which make up a large and growing market. In the United States, this market is expected to hit $1.7 billion by 2015 and $2.5 billion globally by 2017. And because we have a superior product, we truly believe that this market is entirely ours to capture. So how does our product stack up to our competitors? As I mentioned, all are available in limitless supply. And like biological heart valves, our product functions normally and doesn't need lifelong medication. However, unlike biological heart valves, the Vivita process confers onto ValveGen the ability to integrate into the patient, 
meaning following implantation, your own cells will be able to grow into this animal tissue and turn it into your own. Furthermore, it's able to grow with you, which means the needs of the juvenile population are finally addressed. And in avoiding the immune response means that 10-year maximum cap associated with current biological valves is completely eliminated, and therefore we can truly provide patients with a lifetime solution. So to manufacture this valve, as I mentioned, we begin with animal-derived tissue, and we currently treat it with a robust and scalable chemical process, which utilizes cheap and readily available chemicals. Now, as the company grows, we'll be able to translate to large-scale manufacturing through batch processing using equipment that already exists in the lab. Finally, we'll be able to fabricate our heart valves from this material, either in-house or through licensed methods, for implantation into our patients. Our marketing strategy is multifaceted. As we have throughout technology development, we will continue promoting our experimental successes through animal trials and human clinical trials in scientific publications as well as at medical conferences. We've already established our network, but we'll continue to expand our network of veterinarians and cardiac surgeons who will assist us with product implementation and ultimately endorsement of our product. And finally, we'll be building a small sales team to help promote our product at medtech trade shows and medical conferences who will also help us uh, get our product directly into hospitals and cardiac surgical units. Our business model is at a fairly preliminary stage, but we anticipate selling on a per-unit basis. Our cost-effective chemical process will cost about $2,500 per unit to manufacture. And thus far, our customer market research indicates support for a $30,000 to $40,000 price point per unit, as inferior systems already go for $20,000 a piece. Our model is conservative and uses the $30,000 price point. We also have an early uh, revenue strategy to generate revenue until we can enter the heart valve market by licensing the technology to research institutions and selling early veterinary products. So as I mentioned, we're already in small animal trials. We will be headed into large animal studies, product development, and first-in-man trials around 2016. From the business aspect, we'll continue our business development plan as well as focus on product licensing, product definition, as well as our early vet products. And to finance all this, we're applying for um, SBI or grant funding to conduct the large animal trials, which will follow with a round of uh, VC funding. And as you know, the best form of capital is revenue. And so our early um, strategy for generating revenue includes licensing the process to research institutions and selling early veterinary products, which will form the basis of the company. Here are our 10-year financial projections, which are based on three revenue streams. Early revenue will come from licensing our technology and be followed by later revenue by selling units of um, veterinary products, early patch products, and ultimately the heart valve. And this comes on a little later as a result of the FDA regulatory process associated with life science products. But results, all these streams together result in a net um, income that is positive and growing over the next 10 years. So driving the success of Ivita is a very strong team um, standing here to my side. Dr. Lee Griffiths, um, Gina McBarb, and Jenny Lee have all come together, and collectively we have um, both breadth and depth of knowledge in biomedical engineering as well as clinical medicine. We're also joined by a fantastic advisory board made up of um, Dr. Athanasiu and, and Jim Olson, and combined they have over 30 years of business experience, and they've really helped um, drive the development of the company. So I hope you've gleaned the fact that the core research and development for this work is already complete. We got a great start at developing our business strategy through the Biomedical Engineering Entrepreneurial Academy last summer, and this process has just been accelerated through participation in the Big Bang. We'll be pursuing SBIR grant funding to conduct our large animal trials, 
and we'll be working to um, better round out our team with key hires. So with that, I conclude my talk. I thank you for your attention, and I hope you're as excited about revolutionizing regenerative medicine as we are. Thank you. Science, huh? <clears throat> Our last finalists have created a social venture that allows nonprofits to engage their supporters with the mission to bring sustainable financial support to small and medium sized nonprofits through a fun, engaging, and accessible platforms. Our last finalist is Pebble. Hello, good evening everyone. Uh, so we are the co-founders of Pebble. I'm Dylan Fiesel, I'm an entrepreneur with an extensive marketing background. And I'm Alan Alday, I've worked with nonprofits for the last five years on different types of projects for marketing, strat strategic planning, and uh, funding issues. So we're gonna start off uh, by giving your brains and your bodies a little bit of a break. So uh, we're gonna have a little audience engagement here. So if everybody could just stand up really quick. Don't leave, just stand up. Uh, we're, almost, we're almost done. Okay, if you have donated to a nonprofit, if you've ever donated at all, stay standing. Okay, good. You're all good people. Um, if you have donated to a nonprofit that was doing projects and services within your local community, so within your city or your town, go ahead and stay standing. All right? If you have donated to a nonprofit through your mobile application or through your cell phone, go ahead and, and keep on standing. Whoa, okay. All right. This is exactly, you can go ahead and sit down, thank you. Uh, this is exactly the type of opportunity that we want to address tonight. So we have talked to over 80 nonprofits since we went ahead and started this project. And all of these great nonprofits in the Bay Area are doing some great work, but nobody knows about what they're doing. Uh, we have eBayC who finished over $300,000 in the red last year. We have our friend Golden Gate Audubon Society that went ahead and to get a $600 grant, uh, they had to do three days of prep work. This poor executive director had to attend a full day of training just to get $600. Um, and all these nonprofits have something in common. We've signed them all up, and they are ready to give projects uh, through our platform. Now, what does this mean for you as a giver? Um, you want to reduce your search costs. You have a cause that you really care about, but you don't know how to find that cause that really resonates with the interests that you have. What about transparency? Where is that $25 that you're going to give to? Is that going to go to uh, office supplies? Or is that actually going to help send an underprivileged kid to camp? What about accountability? How do you make sure that the nonprofits and the causes and the charities that you donate to actually follow through with your gift and donation? Are they actually going to renovate that playground right across the street? And what about fast and convenient? Um, when you're ready to donate, are you going to run home and go online and make your little donation? Are you going to go ahead and send a check like that stamp and go ahead and, and mail that donation to your favorite nonprofit? Or can you just take out your phone, make that donation in three simple steps, and be on your way? And how can we make this into a fun, rewarding, social, and shareable experience so that all the things that you're doing and giving is not exclusive to you? How do you create momentum for a, a, a cause that you care about and let other people know what you really care about and build momentum for that. So that's what we're going to try to address tonight. Now, there is something that is very effective, and that's cause marketing. Uh, this is an incredibly effective tool for marketers. 
uh, but there are some drawbacks. It's, for one, too expensive to engage at the local level. It's also too difficult to, for those companies to find out about their customers' individual causes that they care about. And finally, it's incredibly risky to actually uh, pair up with the wrong cause. And, you know, as a result of this, of $150 billion advertising spend annually, cause marketing uh, just remains a $4 billion industry. And so what, what we've done is created Pebble. This is um, a mobile engagement platform for the nonprofits and their supporters. We're inherently social, we're local, and we're mobile. And I'm going to walk us through some screenshots here uh, to show you what we've been building. So first off, as Alan may have mentioned, it's, we're breaking up um, these organizations so it's project-based. So you're not just donating to an organization, but you're realizing um, something attainable and uh, nearby where you can actually see the impact where your donation goes. Uh, and so here's an example of one such project. Uh, you're able to see who else uh, around you has donated and how much further they have to go. And you can donate with the crowd as little as a dollar. And those donations are, of course, um, tax deductible. And every time you do donate, you're receiving points that we call pebbles. And these pebbles can be redeemed for some pretty incredible rewards. Um, things like uh, Coca-Cola, Blue Bottle Coffee, uh, or even something philanthropically based like uh, sending a child to camp uh, or feeding a, a family in need. Uh, so I like this one at the bottom. It's uh, Bay Cruise. Uh, and uh, there you go. I'm going to get that. And uh, finally, uh, it's also a, a social uh, app here where you're able to see the other activity going on in your own community. So we really have uh, three main players in our ecosystem. Of course, you have yourselves as the consumers and the users and the givers. We have our partner companies who are offering the rewards. And then we have the nonprofits that are offering the projects. So what makes us different from all other donation platforms? Well, for one, there's that personalized reward system, right? We are going to have partnerships with high-quality projects that nonprofits are offering. So a set, we have a screening method so they don't get lost in all the 1.6 million nonprofits out there. Uh, that their causes don't get lost in the process. And then we're also going to help create a brand, a brand that is so recognizable that when you say, oh, okay, I'm ready to donate, we're going to go to this particular platform. So how in the world are we going to afford this? Here's a quick example. So uh, our friend here, Golden Gate Audubon Society, wants to send 20 students to MLK Junior Shoreline for an eco-education trip. They're asking for $300. You, as a great, wonderful user, is going to donate $100, and you'll get 80 pebbles out of that. What happens to the $100? Well, we have a 5% transaction fee that we extract. That is the first of three revenues that we have. Uh, the processing fee of 2.9% is back end, and the balance goes directly to that project. Now, what happens to the $100? Again, it gets converted to 80 pebbles, some of which this user can now use to redeem rewards, such as this really delicious-looking ice cream from uh, buy right for six pebbles. When they do redeem that, we have a redemption fee on average of 15%. That is our second of three revenue streams. And finally, if that particular company or that particular nonprofit wants to collect aggregate consumer information about what types of uh, giving behaviors or what types of rewards are being redeemed, we offer a data subscription, which is our third source of revenue. So looking at this market, uh, now annual giving is $300 billion a year. 73% of that is coming from individuals. Compare that to uh, company-wide giving. Uh, collectively, that's only $14 billion a year. So who are these donors? Well, if you break it down by income, over 75% are uh, grossing 
income of over $100,000. And this is our initial target market. So these people are tech savvy, they're affluent, they're educated, they're cause-oriented, and they are community mavens and influencers in their own communities. Now, taking a look at the, um, the total available market, it's about $35 billion is what we're looking at for this venture. Uh, that considers the individual online giving. Now, a servable available market is $2.5 billion. Uh, that, that cuts it down to only the uh, smartphone users, who are also donors. And then with our initial beta launch, uh, focusing on one territory in Northern California and one platform on iOS, we're looking at $150 million. And we are not the only players in this space. Uh, you may recognize some of these other names. Alan mentioned some of the differentiators. Uh, but what we see is, is a big opportunity in this industry for a consumer-oriented cause marketing, and, and that's where we think we can put our stake in the ground. And in addition to Dylan and myself, we've developed a great team. We have Chris Liu, who's great at mobile app development, and Ethan Bliss, a wonderful graphic designer who's responsible for all the wonderful screenshots you've seen tonight. We have a great set of advisors, Bruce Birch, who's a cause marketing author, super connector, Zoe Hun, who's providing legal counsel for uh, social ventures like our, ourselves, Judy Chen, a consumer marketing innovations executive to give us feedback and insight on cause marketing, and a fellow entrepreneur, Ryan Mickle, CEO of Yardsale. Now, what do our financials look? Um, our assumptions for this financial model, uh, on average, um, online, $1,000 is donated by a user per year. Um, we have used a more conservative uh, figure of $100 a year per user being donated. And you can see that the expected projections by 2017 are still pretty relevant with regard to donations of over 200, almost 228 million and an EBITDA of at least 30 million. Now I want to tell you where we are today. We are currently wrapping up the development of our beta product and we are set to launch this, this summer. Uh, I encourage all of you to go online and sign up to be an early user of our uh, product. Uh, you can go to pebble.org and sign up there. And if you'd like to talk with us more, have any questions, please feel free to reach us in the hall and we are happy to discuss it. Thank you for your time. Thank you. We've had some really wonderful ideas this year and I'd really like to congratulate everyone who entered the competition. So if you're feeling inspired right now and you have an idea, we want to encourage you to apply and be in next year's competition. Or if you don't know how to write a business plan, we'd like to encourage you to apply for the Graduate School of Management. We're currently accepting applications through June 26th. I would also like to acknowledge and thank the other student leaders that helped to make the Big Bang possible. Jake McLeod Romer, Julia Lee, Stefan State, and Jane Yu. Additionally, we want to thank all of the workshop mentors, presenters, and judges who have been very generous with their time and energy and helped make this year's competition a success. Okay, we're going to go ahead and start tallying the results, and then we're going to come back and announce this, uh, this evening's winners. In the meantime, though, it is my pleasure to introduce our next speaker. Professor Andrew Hargadon is the Charles J. Soderquist Chair in Entrepreneurship. He's a senior fellow at the Kauffman Foundation and professor of technology management here at the UC Davis Graduate School of Management. Additionally, he is the founder and faculty director of the UC Davis Child Family Institute for Innovation and Entrepreneurship. Please join me in welcoming Professor Hargadon. Thank you very much. And uh, let me also say welcome to the, uh, to the, uh, the Big Bang this year. It's, 
I'm, I'm uh, really excited. These teams were terrific, weren't they? Uh, I got here and I inherited the, uh, the faculty advisor position for the Big Bang in 2002. And to see the difference between then and now uh, is, is stunning. To see the difference even between a few years ago and now is stunning. So I, I just want you all to appreciate uh, how, how wonderful these teams are and what they're doing. It's also been great to see them throughout the last couple years because as the, uh, you know, in, in the entrepreneurship institute, we have the chance to see them uh, when they come in as research projects, as class projects in the entrepreneurship academies, in Will's business development clinic, and, in, and to see the evolution of the individual ideas and the individual teams as they morph from class projects to real businesses that, uh, with, with committed entrepreneurs is, is truly terrific. Okay, so I have four points. I would tweet them if I could, and, uh, and we could all just stay at home with our mobile phones. But, but I won't. I'm going to go through them quickly, though, as quickly as I can. Um, so the first point I want to make is about entrepreneurship is that it's a career path. And what I mean by that is it's not a one-shot deal. It's not something you do between college or, or grad school and getting a real job. It's actually a career in and of itself. And I think that's a really important thing to recognize, not only because as an entrepreneur, your first company may fail, your second company may fail, but you and your career may bloom because you do them well, you do them with integrity, you do them with commitment and passion, and everybody else can see that and they want you on their team for the next startup and the next one after that. And eventually you succeed and it becomes a career. And talk to any of the entrepreneurs in the room and, and that's what they will tell you. The other reason I think it's important to note that this is a career path is that the world is changing and the modern corporate career path that you might have, have remembered and thought about and heard from your parents is no longer. And so if, let me give you a brief 400 year history. The modern organization started in 1604 with the East India Company. Jumped, uh, jumped 200 more years to the 1800s, and what you have is essentially the first modern corporation in America, Union Pacific, the railroad companies. It employs over 100,000 people. Then you jump to the 20th century, early 1900s, Ford Motor Company employs 150,000 people. General Motors by 1950 is employing 700,000 people. This is the career, actually by now for a lot of you kids, that your grandparents had. For some of us, it was our parents who had that career. And it was a career in which you got your job when you were 21 and you left the company when you were 65. And you rarely left the company before then. If you did, uh, you know, it was considered a career failure. This is the company that swore they would take care of you forever. Uh, and then along comes the modern corporations. Apple has 70,000 people, Google, has 35, excuse me, Google has 50. Facebook has five, or actually had 5,000 when they IPO'd. If you think that's bad, Instagram had 12 when they were acquired for $2 billion. What's happening is actually a general trend in the IPOs, and I throw these out for specifics, a general trend in the IPOs of startups, they're starting and they're going public at smaller and smaller employee populations. In other words, the startups are getting smaller, the companies are getting smaller, and the jobs, therefore, are going away. What it means, inevitably, is that your career path may be entrepreneurial whether you like it or not. <laughs> but, and I don't want to say that, that that traditional corporate career is gone, but I will say that they don't trust that they'll be around for very long either, let alone that your job will be around for very long. 
So if you quote from, this is a wonderful quote from the head of Amazon hiring. The core qualities that they're looking for in graduates, both in MBA and undergrads, are a really strong sense of ownership, customer obsession, a strong bias for action and teamwork. Built in there is the ability to influence others, to invent and deliver on behalf of the customer. We want them to incubate new ideas and be able to take them to market fast. This is your career path in corporations. If you think it's much different than a career path in startups, you're mistaken now. They're looking for exactly the same set of skills. So the point I want to make this first point is those kind of skills are hard to come by until you put in the effort to get them. And then they're everywhere you weren't looking. They're in the Big Bang. They're in the entrepreneurship academies. They're in the business development clinics. They're in starting businesses while you're in school. So go out there and try and find these entrepreneurial experiences because they are the education that will prepare you for your career path. All right, that's my first point. My second point, don't wait until you have a good idea because it's not about the idea. I think you mentioned my book. Somebody mentioned my book wonderfully before, Chris, so thank you for that. <laughs> it's, just, it's, it's a stipulation of talking. It's, I won't talk if somebody doesn't mention my book first. No, but I want to point out, don't, figure, don't wait until you have a great idea. Edison didn't wait until he had a great idea. He saw a great idea. The idea of the light bulb was 40 years old by the time he started his business around it. He didn't invent anything. He took existing light bulbs, existing generators, wiring. He copied a business model from the gas utility companies. And he created a system that we remember him for, but he didn't invent any of it. Neither, in fact, did Henry Ford. He didn't invent the automobile. He didn't invent mass production. In fact, he said it well. I invented nothing new. I simply assembled into the car the discoveries of other men behind whom were centuries of work. So it is with every new thing. As an entrepreneur, this is your job. It's not to come up with an idea, but to see the great ideas that are out there that could be more than they seem to be at the moment. Apple didn't invent the personal computer. They saw one working in Xerox Park, and they simply recreated it. They didn't invent the first iPod. Theirs was the 15th iPod on the market. They made their iPod because nobody else would make one for the Apple platform, and they created that. And then when it came to the iPhone, they simply borrowed cell phone circuitry, connected it to the iPod, connected it to AT&T and the cellular network, connected it to app developers, and created a revolution. Again, they didn't start with the idea, but they sure ended with it. And Google, the 15th search, play, or search engine on the market, don't think that any of these people came up with an idea and that was the start of the company. They saw ideas that were already out there and they found ways to make them better. Facebook, anybody remember MySpace? Instagram, <laughs> Twitter with pictures. So if it's not about the idea, what is it about? What is the core skill you need as an entrepreneur? You need the ability to make connections. To see the ideas that are already out there, the people who are out there that can make those ideas better, the resources, the investors, the customers, and find the ways to make connections around them. What did Edison do? He combined all of the latest with the, uh, of the generators and wiring and bulbs and, and suppliers that brought them. Apple did the same thing with the iPod. In fact, they went out to the a portal player, uh, um, a circuitry company, and simply said, give us the guts of the best MP3 players on the market already. We'll take them, we'll package them, and we'll resell them as ours. We just need to be in the market. And again, combining that with AT&T was a big deal. And then combining that with Universal Vivendi and the other record labels made Apple and the iPhone and the iPod and the iTunes better. So a way to think about entrepreneurship and your entrepreneurial career is it's going to be dependent on your connections. And your connections are going to be people to people. Success will be measured in your career by the number of handshakes you accomplish every day, every week, every month, and every year. It's not, a, it's not a bad skill. It's not a hard skill. It's not a technical skill. 
but it's a critical skill to be, to be successful in the entrepreneurial world. And then finally, it's about doing, which means that we can sit here and talk about this. These people can come up and present their plans about what they're going to do. But ultimately, the only people who succeed are the ones that get out and do it. So why do I say this is so important? Well, Paul Graham said it better. He said, every institution, think of it, any company you can think of, even the, even the East India Company, was at one point a handful of people in a room deciding to start something. Institutions are made up and made up by people no different from you. So I wanted to drive this home, and I figured this is the best way I could do it, because we tend to see these people when they're successful. We don't see them when they're just getting their start. There's Thomas Edison as you remember him. This is the Thomas Edison who actually did the work. Not 80 years old. I, I, apologies to any of octogenarians in the room. But you don't put 20 hours a day, you know, 100 hours a week, 200, you know, 150 hours a week into a startup when you're 80. You do when you're, when you're 20s, in your late 20s. This is Bill Hewlett and David Packard recreating that wonderful moment when they started in a Palo Alto garage. This is them actually at age 27 and 29 starting the company. No different from you in the room, right? There's Bill Gates, one of the richest men in the world. There's Bill Gates when he started Microsoft, all right? <laughs> Come on, if he can do it, look at it. That guy's got a silly grin, you know why? Because he just had his first beer and got arrested for speeding in his new sports car that he bought with his company's first revenue, all right? <laughs> you guys can do this. Steve Jobs, as you know him, Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak at age 21, all right? These are guys no different from you. Sergey and Larry of Google, yeah, Sergey and Larry of Google. These guys are grad students. Come on, you can do this. All right, so how can you do this? Any number of ways to get started, but I want to say, again, it's been wonderful to, to watch all these folks do all these great things from the Child Family Institute of Innovation and Entrepreneurship. Uh, we have a number of programs that I'll just throw up here, a second stipulation for talking which is we're here to offer you the opportunity to learn these skills in the best way we can. So however we can do that, we are willing and able to do that. But we have our entrepreneurship academies. Uh, you've heard about them. You, we have the Big Bang Business Competition, as obviously. For undergraduates, there's the ASUCD Entrepreneurship Fund, which is another business competition. We have the Sustainable Ag Tech Innovation Center, which offers seed grants if you have ideas, innovations in agriculture. And then finally, we have a Think Global Launch Local Internship Program. For anybody interested in starting careers in entrepreneurship while you're in school, we'll place you in local entrepreneurial and local startups. You get a good sense of what life is like there, and you get to meet the local entrepreneurs who are living it. All right, I say with that, uh, thank you very much for being here. It's, it's great, and I'm glad you have the chance to share uh, with us our team and all of us. Okay, well, this is the moment that we've all been waiting for. So um, first, we're going to go ahead and announce the People's Choice Award. Every, all of the teams got a lot of votes. Um, but this year's winner for People's Choice is Vivita Technologies. So please come on up. Okay, our second place team this year, uh, taking home a prize of $5,000, is Davis Kim. Congratulations. Okay, and first place, taking home the check for $10,000, is also our People's Choice winner, Vivita Technologies. Congratulations.
I'd like to say thank you to everyone for coming out this evening. It's been a great year, a lot of fun. We really appreciate your support. Um, I'd also like to take a minute to ask all of our judges and sponsors to come up to the front. We'd love to get a picture with everybody. Um, so thank you so much, and have a good night. I hope you join us again next year. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.